0: Our response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. But how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how the professionals in those industries are contributing towards our collective effort to reach net zero and a more sustainable and prosperous future. Material Change, Resourcing Net Zero.
1: Welcome to Material Change, Resourcing Net Zero, an IOM3 and content with purpose podcast series all about exploring the essential role of the materials, minerals and mining communities in addressing the climate crisis and achieving net zero targets. Now in the area we live in, it's that we hear it almost every day. The speed of change is is a constant source of amazement to almost all of us. It's dizzying and it's hard to keep up. There are faster computers and smarter devices and miniaturized things and different systems for people to get things done. And the list just goes on and on and on. But it's important to remember that none of this change just pops up spontaneously. Somebody had to put in the work to develop the science and the engineering and the systems and to work out what's going to be successful and how to make it successful. And it's a huge and often unseen task because if if your new widget or your system works, everyone just takes it for granted. It effectively becomes invisible and no one really thinks about where it came from. But effective R&D, research and development, is a critical foundation for the sort of technological and societal revolution we're going through at the moment. So our podcast topic for today is R&D and how it could, should or shouldn't help propel us into a more sustainable world. And as always, we've got two fantastic guests to help us explore this topic. So let me introduce you to the first of the two, and that is Chris McDonald, who is the CEO of the Materials Processing Institute. Chris, just to start us off, tell us just a little bit about what the Materials Processing Institute is and and your role inside it.
2: Hi, Helen. Well, look, it's it's great to be having this conversation. And the the Materials Processing Institute is the UK's national centre for innovation for the for the metal sector. So our job essentially is to get innovations off the desk and into factories, um, getting inventions that to to make money by actually um, t- turning the handle in a factory, producing an efficiency, reducing carbon emissions, or, or maybe it's a new type of a new type of metal alloy as well. And um, we've been doing that for a long time, for many decades. Um, but our focus now is very much around climate change. Um, so a a lot of what we do is industrial decarbonisation, circular economy and recycling as well and we're also really interested in how we apply digital technologies in that space to create efficiency and also to reduce carbon emissions.
1: Brilliant and and what's your perspective on R&D in the materials industry and especially on on what's needed for reaching net zero? What are the right sorts of things that need to be happening and and are they happening in the R&D part of it?
2: I think when it comes to materials, the, the thing is the challenges are just so enormous. So look, if you've got a, if you've got a factory and you want to decarbonize it, then the, the best thing you can do is electrify and, and buy green electricity to, to run your production lines. But in the materials sector, it's just not quite that simple. A lot of the processors operate large-scale furnaces. They might be using carbon fuels not only for heat, but also for, for chemical processes at the same time as well. So in actual fact, we need to completely redesign our factory, come up with whole new ways of making materials. And that's the really big challenge. So it involves a lot of fundamental science um, at our great university base in the UK, um, but but then engineers as well doing the upscaling and translating this across. And then then the crucial bit is it involves a lot of capital investment because we're not just on about here adapting existing materials, uh, processing facilities, but building brand new processes at scale. That's billions of pounds of investment that will be needed not only in the UK, but every country around the world as we decarbonise the materials sector.
1: Well it's an important point because I, I guess you know when we think about you know when the public certainly or business owners think about R&D in the materials world the things we hear about are things like novel materials and making things lighter and recycling and the actual processing is is you know it's hidden isn't it so um, and I guess your members are very aware of that but it's really good to hear it discussed as it because obviously industry takes up you know uses a huge amount of resources all by itself and so we'll come back to some of those topics let's come let's meet our second guest for today and that's David Knowles who is the CEO of the Henry Royce Institute so same first question for you David for those who aren't familiar with the Henry Royce Institute what's it and what do you do?
3: Hi Helen, it's great to be here. Yeah, and in in many ways we come from from quite a different direction from Chris um, from the Materials Processing Institute. So the Henry Royce Institute is relatively young. So it was conceived around 2016. Um, It's just finished actually being built. Um, It's actually a partnership um, with the center at the University of Manchester, but with a number of other partners from around different um, research organizations and um, universities around the country. Its focus is very much that translational stage. of getting materials to looking at developing new advanced materials but getting those out and translated into commercial reality really and into societal benefit. So a lot of the sort of things we're doing translate into the space where organisations like Chris's, is, the Materials Processing Institute, sort of take those and look at real scale up. Um, so it's about getting that whole ecosystem in place from if you like early discovery right through to um, yeah, commercial reality in that regard and, and we're filling that space very much Um, much more associated with the that early early development
1: so we've got a broad range of expertise here so what's your perspective then David on on the sort of research and developments that are needed what are the priorities and how's the UK doing you know compared with other countries in all this
3: well, I think we've heard, I mean, we've heard already that, you know, materials at the heart of almost every every challenge we face, certainly every technical challenge we face in a society, well, that's nationally and, and an international perspective. And, you know, you, I could give you loads of examples of this. We could talk about net zero. We could talk about zero. Pollution, actually, which is probably a better description. Um, we can talk about healthy nation, resilient nation, um, positive resources, and, and perhaps in the current climate also concerned around national security. You know, they all, are, you know, a lot of those are centered around material solutions, actually, and materials challenges. So now, more than ever, the drives there as well for more sustainable use of resources. Um, so it's about having the right materials at our disposal in many ways. Um, We need to rely less on critical materials and and we need to, you know, we need to address those supply constraints and environmental issues, which, um, which mean we've got to make the most of what we've got.
0: Material Change, resourcing net zero. Produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. This episode is sponsored by SRK Consulting and the University of Bath. SRK Consulting is an independent international consultancy for mining, with expertise from exploration to mine closure. The University of Bath's innovative materials research is helping to support a low carbon future. Material change, resourcing net zero
1: let's move that on to just because I'm interested in um, in incentives for, from both of you really for, for R&D because it's very easy to talk about these these kind of big conceptual things as though it should just happen you know someone somewhere should do this but I'm interested in the current incentives for businesses and companies and organizations to really get stuck into R&D you know not just an extension of what they've done before or you know making the same kind of materials slightly, slightly lighter but What's the sort of um, what are the incentives for really bold R&D and are there enough of them who'd like to pick up on that?
2: So yeah, I mean, I, I I could say something there, Helen. Look, I think the, the important thing is here, and I've sat on the other side of the fence. I used to run a research department, a big multinational business, and it's all about risk. Um, and particularly for small businesses as well, you know, they can maybe only make one or two bets on an innovation, so they they've got to kind of get that risk under control, and and that's where government grants, government funding schemes come in. They reduce the risk, R&D tax credits. They give they give business a great a great scheme actually that give businesses um, some support when, when and they've implemented an innovation that's been successful. But, but, you know, you asked the question of David, well, how is the UK doing here? And I think actually we've got a problem. So just today, the chief executive of Johnson, Matthew, said the UK is at great risk of falling behind other countries in terms of um, the hydrogen economy, an area where we were were ahead three years ago. And the reason we're falling behind is not because we're doing less, but everyone else is doing so much more. So I was at the Hydrogen for Life conference um, in in the summer in London and uh, the government, government minister, the then energy minister, um, at that time, he, he was saying, look, we're investing two, 250 million pounds um, in, in the hydrogen economy, which is crucial for new materials development. Um, but it was pointed out to in by another speaker that over the same period, the German government's investing the equivalent of a billion pounds. So there's an international competition, international race here. And when you're doing the job that I was doing in a multinational business, you choose to invest in the place with the best incentives. And currently, the UK is losing out on that investment. And this you know, comes back to my earlier point about investment. So I think I think the key thing is, in terms of incentives, we've got to look at how we bring the risk down for private companies. They've got money, they're ready to invest, but they've got to have the risk down. But we also have to recognise that as a nation, the UK is in a global competition for this investment. And we've got to at least match the competition in what we're offering.
1: And David, what's your view of the, of the incentives and, and what they incentivise?
3: Well, I'll, I won't put it down to quite as incentives, but I'd say, you know, my, my take on this is that, you know, it's often said that necessity is the mother of invention. And, and I think that there's a huge amount of brilliant, pure science that's done in the UK, but, um, and it's led to some fantastic discoveries. But I don't really subscribe to the fact that that's actually going to drive the pace of change that we need in innovation. So if you look at materials, it's a discipline that's you know, really very close to engineering um, and it finds inspiration from delivering solutions. So what we need is better clarity around what the materials challenges are that are out there, and what things really need to be addressed. I mean, a really good example of this is, is hydrogen. I'll come back to, it. it's a topic that Chris has already touched on. So we look at one of the main routes to green hydrogen is through electrolysis. Um, and we look, we talk about protein ex- proton exchange membranes, which are you know, probably the most preferred route for, for that production of hydrogen, looking at that going forward. Well, if you just do the simple scales and say, well, we need terawatts of generation um, capacity of hydrogen, um, Iridium is a critical material for that. We only produce nine tons of that a year. You know, it's a byproduct of platinum production. And so we need 27 years of production at that scale to even to get to terawatt scales. It's not going to happen. We really need to then realize that we've got to get much more out of each Iridium app. And if we go down that, or we've got to find alternatives. So so for me, it's about ensuring the environment is there, which stimulates innovation in the correct areas. And I think that's just as important that it you know, then translates that. It's got to translate that into applications and market opportunities. So, you know, you need great skills, you need great minds, but you need to have that direction. And just the one final point is we need to also create the right regulatory environment across our market sectors. So that creates the conditions in which those businesses can develop and grow. Well,
1: there's, I mean, there's a whole load of things here. But let, let's pick up on, on one of them, which is the question of collaboration and openness. And, and I think, you know, the materials industry is has been very traditional in some ways. It's got its ways of doing things. It hasn't needed to change necessarily very much. Um, and and it's been faced with big change now. But one of those changes is, is, is about collaboration because, you know, I guess a business investing in R&D has the thing where, well, they've put the money into this thing. And as Chris said, it could be a big risk for them to do it. If it succeeds, they want the benefits of it. And yet when you have all these, companies who are kind of trying to solve similar problems, you know, if they collaborated on solutions, perhaps they would all get there quicker, but then not no one, ind- you know, individual would own the IP for that process or device. How do businesses deal with this need to collaborate just because, you know, the problem is so complicated and the, you know, the whole area is so complex with this, well, if I'm going to put money into R&D, I want my business to benefit, not, you know, not, I'm not doing this research to benefit everyone else. How how do businesses balance that?
2: Well, I think um, I think Helen that certainly the sector I've worked in a lot, the steel sector, has has always actually been very good at collaborating within its sector because the challenges have just been too big for any one company. But one thing that we've hitherto not been so good at is challenging, is collaboration across the materials industry. And that's something that David and I are, are, are actually working on actively now. So, so David at the Royce Centre, ourselves at the Materials Processing Institute and a couple of other UK research centres have got together to form the Foundation Industries Sustainability Consortium. And we're investing, between us, £19.5 million pounds of money that's come from Innovate UK to create real uh, capability across the whole of the what we call the Foundation industry. So that's steel, metal, cement, res- ceramics, glass. Um, have I missed one, David? Uh, paper, possibly, um, and chemicals as well um, across that whole area. Because you're right, the challenges are common. So these challenges about kind of switching big furnaces and, um, you know, materials for new green applications, they're common challenges across the whole sector. And and that's the new frontier of collaboration in materials, essentially. It's getting multi-materials collaboration. And that's something that, that currently is been driven by, by the research guys, by David, myself and others, and bringing the industry with us as well. I don't know, David, do you think that's a fair characterization of where we are?
3: I think that's a really important point. And, and in many places, Helen, I mean, people get fixated with IP, but a lot of the cases here is it's about translational skills. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we can um, use in one sector but can be employed in others. And and in reality, a lot of it's about first adopters. So what we need in the UK is is um, a broad material um space that's agile you know it's, it's developing common frameworks we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit later about digital and materials there you know div- developing copper common approaches across all our different um industries is key in that regard um otherwise we're not going to, to respond to change and um, we're in a world of change you know that's i think that's the norm going forward and
1: how about external perspectives because you know so chris just said you know the metals industry has been very good with collaborating itself but not necessarily with the rest of the materials World, But then there's a world outside that of users, for example, and governments and policymakers. There's an even wider world of collaboration. And perhaps there's people looking in saying, well, we want the materials industry to do this. Is there a way for those considerations to feed in? Or is it for the materials industry to kind of work things out and then sort of present them to the world and say, this is what we've got. Do you like it or not?
3: Well, I think I, I mean our will chip in. I'll start on this one. I'm sure Chris will have some things to say. I mean, I, I'm very I very much subscribe to the top down perspective. I'm really keen that um, we look at what the big challenges are, and then we feed down and look at well, what what does road what does materials need to do in those areas. So we often talk about roadmaps, really, and and say, well, what's the what are the key blocks or chokes um, that that materials as a as a, a discipline is holding things back in. Um, it, the key in that is understanding all the interfaces, so you know where does materials link to other engineering or technology aspects and with historically we 've not been great at that. we tend to push technology out rather than pull it through, and that I think is is key, and that plays to all the things that you 've talked about with stakeholders, etc um, having their having their say and in their input i mean circularity and use of materials, a lot of the benefits there can come from societal change in the way that they perceive those materials and how they use them. And, And a lot of it's not driven by technology changes. So we need to identify what the key ones are. Um, that's that's critical for
1: us. Anything to add on that, Chris?
2: Yeah, I think I agree with what David said. And I think Helen, there's a um, there is a wider world out there that needs to be brought in. And the challenge for materials is that it's so cross-cutting. So so quite often we segment the economy by uh, by sector: aerospace, automotive, rail, and so on. You know, all, all of these bits of the industrial economy. Um, but but materials cuts across all of these. So when you're looking at an innovation. Um, an innovation that might might make sense in an in an aerospace vertical, but from a materials perspective, it only really makes sense if it can be applied across multiple sectors, and that creates a big challenge for the materials guys essentially to be able to uh, justify their 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 uh, the innovation and demonstrate there's a market potential for their innovation. So, one way to deal with this is by looking at innovation through a supply chain. And that's, that's something that, that again, I'm, I and my colleagues work on. It's something I'm particularly interested in, in a lot of the work that I do with small businesses. But what what we rapidly discover is that, that these supply chains are not really well understood or really well mapped. So, we can have materials producers feeding two or three steps down the supply chain, but not really knowing where the end application is. Or if you start at the other end with, a, with an – automotive manufacturer, for instance, they can see a couple of layers below them, but not necessarily all the way back to the materials producer as well. So there's a, there's a bit of a mystery in the middle. And this is where, again, we can get a lot of innovation happening that could increase productivity and, and increase numbers of jobs, but also where there are real vulnerabilities as well, real pinch points in the supply chain. So so I think that's that's a really new area for collaboration. It's one that's difficult and complex, but where there could be a lot of value. And it's about getting the supply chains working together as well.
1: I think the sort of the, the perspective on this is really the change in perspective on some of these things is really interesting because I, you know, I, you know, my dad worked in the plastics industry and he was involved, you know, if someone bought a sack of polypropylene pallets, nobody asked where the polypropylene pallets came from, right? And that was part of the point that you, you shouldn't have to know that the user should just know that somebody was going to deliver. Here you go. Here's your ton of material. You know, that's the end of it. And it was almost designed not not to hide things, but but it was seen as a convenience to the user that they didn't have to know. And suddenly we're turning all that on its head and saying, actually, we do need to know. We do need to talk to each other. We do need to take responsibility. And, and I'd like to, to move on to, to the issue of cost, because all of this stuff about, you know, the, the, one of the many problems, the multifaceted problems we face is that it's all coming along at the same time, right? You know, we uh, People have been talking about the climate and the environment for years, and now it's hit a critical point. Great, so let's go on that. But let's get going on that. But at the same time, we've got a energy price crisis because gas prices are going through the roof. You know, um, we've got geopolitical uncertainty. We've got all these other pressures. Uh, you know, a shortage of skilled labour in in some many sectors, especially in engineering. So how? And and so and R and D is expensive, right? And as you said, Chris, it's risky. So how should businesses think about? You know the the money like how much is it worth them investing in r&d when there's all these uncertainties and they've got to juggle all these other things and you know there's all these cost pressures H- how do we deal with the cost of of r&d
3: that's a very difficult one and i think it touches on a lot of stuff that you've just talked to and chris has just talked about so <clears throat> historically um if you look at private investment um there's very little private investment that goes into materials research it's seen as a risky area so they'll invest in um, they'll invest in things like IT um, and these sorts of areas because they see immediate benefit from that materials is a long burn. I mean historically it's taken fifteen to twenty years to get a material from invention through to commercialization it's it's huge long times to realize that investment and that's something that we need to change um, and and that's something that I think we Places like Royce, uh, Materials Processing Institute, uh, are there to help unlock, they're there to help provide infrastructure and capability to help accelerate materials through from, if you like, a concept to a a reality. Because, of course, the material is not the end of the game. It's got to go into a device or something like that. So we need to understand all those supply chains in that regard. So the investment has to look at that. And I think it's also a little bit about... Developing a mindset. There are some great examples of technology translation in the UK out of a number of different areas that have worked really well, um, but not enough of them. And and I I think there's opportunities there. I think there's but but we've got to link the the need um, to the sort of the investment and the and the I guess the 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 research and innovation activity in that regard. So we're not gonna we're not gonna get out of this from government investment. Government investment will help and it will help leverage, but we do need industry to come on board. But industry need to see what the benefits are going to be for them and um, and that's that's not straightforward in all these cases because they're very new and emergent technologies and they're dependent on government policy. And
1: you, you can't pick winners to some extent. Um, and so Chris, what's what's your, you know, on, on the sort of costs of this, this is an expensive thing to be looking at. How, how should we all think about that?
2: So, yeah. So, I mean, Helen, you're right. You can't pick winners, but actually if you can build a portfolio, that's essentially how you deal with it. So, you know, my, my a lot of my job is uh, is about managing R&D portfolios. And generally, the clients that work with the Materials Processing Institute, uh, the larger clients, the big companies, see a return on investment of between 8 to 1 and 10 to 1 in a year for the money that they spend on innovation. So, we have a big enough portfolio that, you know, some projects will be successful, some won't. The only thing is at the start, we don't know which ones are which until we we work our way through the portfolio. It's a a whole kind of technology risk management uh, piece. But what, what what you can't do is you can't do that with a small business because they're only, you know, they're only running one project or two projects. And that's where the de-risking via government grant schemes and so on becomes really important. And then, then there is another sort of layer on this, which is, you know, that what I've just described in terms of technology risk management is kind of fine under steady state conditions. It's perhaps been fine for the last 40 years, but we're going through a revolution now. We're going through a green revolution and a digital revolution all at the same time. And that kind of pushes the risk even more. So as I said companies are just being very careful about choosing where they invest and this is a this is a big challenge for the UK because our uh, business environment is uniquely bad for materials companies it's a very very difficult place for materials companies to make money because they're so energy intensive as compared with uh, elsewhere in Europe even at these in these times you know Europe Europe is a better place than the UK so so we've got to think about a number of things here we've got to think about technology risk management how we reduce that risk but we also have to think about what the business environment Environment, the larger business environment is in uh, in in the country, and that's very much a matter of policy as well, because having a competitive business environment gives companies the ca- spare capital that enables them to invest in innovation. And an uncompetitive business environment means there's no spare capital to invest uh, in innovation too. So it's a bit of a, it's a big business ecosystem. This, and you need to get all of it right.
1: And just I mean, there's so many things that I would love to talk about here, but just very quickly, one thing on R and D. So there's this. R and D, especially in in business, I think, especially for small to medium sized businesses, as you were saying, has traditionally been quite incremental. You know, we've got a widget. We'll make our widget a bit better. We do this kind of thing. We'll make. We'll do this kind of thing a bit faster. And actually, in the outside world, you know, the tech industry, the thing that the tech industry focus on focuses on is disruptors. They sort of fetish. You know, they 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 celebrate the people who came along and just well, we're not thinking about any of that, we're doing something else and we just circumvent the whole problem. Is there any space for, for disruptive innovation in, in the UK materials sector or because of, because of the reasons and the risks that you've set out, is it, is it just going to be incremental and we have to accept that?
3: No, I think I think there's loads of opportunities for disruption. It's just it's just it's just because you're further down, if you like the the chain, you've got to be able to l- make the link between what you can do and what game changer that can be. And so I think that you know this is this point about understanding where that material could be applied. So you've got to understand the market and what you're disrupting and then in the market you're disrupting isn't the materials market it's the devices and the functional materials and it's the application so you're you you've got in almost two steps away from that so the the real disruptive materials innovation yeah that's because they've got sight they've seen they've seen where their their materials can have a application that for me is why it's so important that we get more of the the sort of I wouldn't say naturally venture capital, certainly things like private equity, um, larger industry, looking deeper down into what is available within that sort of early discovery portfolio that's coming out of universities and small startups, et cetera. I think it's there. I think it's there. But as Chris said, we're not exploiting it. And and perhaps we're not incentivizing it enough. We could do more to actually um, draw that through and and put a a sense of commercial reality on some of the um, opportunities, get people thinking about, well, how could what I'm doing be used how could it be exploited why am I why am I doing this research you know some people don't ask that question it's a really important question to ask themselves so
2: yeah, I think there's huge potential for disruption. Actually, um, so there are um, at our campus in in Redcar, we um, uh, small companies that want to work with us co-locate with us, and we've got three big disruptors there actually. So we've got one SME startup uh, with a new technology for low carbon cement, uh, another one producing powders for 3D printing for metal alloys, and and a third one looking at um, that that's developed a technology for for recycling um, sort of circular economy of former wastes from steelworks and reintroducing them into the process. Three massive disruptors technologies that could go global. Um, The thing is, they're small businesses, so they will either die or thrive based on their technology. In a big business, any good innovation portfolio that's well-balanced will always have some disruptors in there, as well as some incremental stuff as well, so you manage the risk and the return uh, from the overall portfolio.
1: I think and it's right I guess the point about boldness and being prepared to try and fail is very important there's a period it's slightly off topic this but um in the when fossil when fossil when creatures first developed hard shells and could be fossilized there's this amazing like if you look at the very very early fossil record there's all these kind of insects with eight legs and three eyes and they just added an extra wing and there's this amazing like let's just you know evolution was kind of like oh well let's put some extra ones on here and see what happens and it, it doesn't take long in the fossil record before we kind of get you know insects that have six legs so you know, sort of settles down a bit but i feel we're very much in that initial period of oh well let's stick a, stick a, stick some extra wings on it here let's see what it, let's see what happens if we can see in uv and and that's perhaps the way to think about it that it's just this is the great experiment um i just want to pick up so david you mentioned before digital um and and the you know the sort of crossover there and perhaps that's something that people don't think about as much in association with materials but could you just expand on that a bit
3: well, I think potentially this is one of the real game changers around materials. And I won't spend a lot of time dwelling on all different aspects of it. But, you know, we've got to accelerate discovery and uh, one opportunity we've got to do that around materials is is very much around br- embracing you know everyone's heard of in- industry 4.0 well we actually now talk about material 4.0 in that space so this is this is around material informatics this is around using artificial intelligence and it's and it's all around advancing materials discovery um we've got work going on in um, one of our labs in in liverpool where they're using um robotics to replace humans and so they can work 24 hours a day run through huge numbers of different sort of material simulations and look at things like new photocatalysts you know so that's one example but the other one is being able to scrape and look across all the data that we've got and all the historic all the historic work we've done and look at developing new trends and understandings from that in the way that a human mind can't do so there's that potential there um, and we're just at that translates through to right through to manufacturing all these things have to be linked up Helen actually that's what's so important we can't do all this stuff in in just isolated pots. but um, other people are looking at it as well so you know we've got to we've got to push on with this we've got to exploit it it's going to be able to um, allow us to really sort of stay at the cutting edge you know globally and if we don't we will we will lose ground because it is being picked up in other areas. It is being used. Um, it's a very efficient way of sort of getting away from doing lots and lots of experiments, for instance. So it can reduce costs substantially as well in that new, in that new material development space. Um, exciting, challenging. Um, often it's a different lexicon. So when you talk to these different disciplines, you know we're all talking different languages. So we've got to get to grips with that. Um, but if you look at some of the stuff that's coming out of it and, and the, if you like the, the digital definition of materials and what you can visualise and how that interfaces across to some of the, the modelling activities that are out there um, and the opportunities that are being unlocked by some of the investments in places like Royce where you can look at high fidelity materials. It's incredibly exciting. It's incredibly exciting.
1: We just said that you, you can't pick winners but it does seem that the computer scientists are definitely a winner in whatever the future is. Uh, um, yes. So... <laughs> um, so then all right so so priorities right so in the immediate future right we can sort of see we can see um a map perhaps an outline map of where we need to go and what the problems are but what are the immediate priorities either for businesses or for governments who are coming up with policy and regulation like you know quite briefly if you would what are the what are the priorities in the immediate future what needs to happen now uh chris you can go first
2: Yeah, so I think the biggest challenge facing the material sector is decarbonisation. And certainly for the area I work in, in metals, we can see now what the technologies are that we will need to deploy beyond 2030. But those technologies are not yet fully commercialised. And we're confident, I'm confident, my team are confident that we can solve those technology challenges in the same way that other teams are around the world. And that there is investment ready to crowd in behind that that will build those factories of the future. In fact, we've just seen that last week. ArcelorMittal, the biggest steel player in the world, investing in a brand new facility in Canada. What what we're lacking in the UK is the certainty of the policy direction and and the public funding to sit alongside that as well. And I'm concerned that it, because, you know, as David said, you know, the timescales for development of materials are so long. I'm concerned that if we don't resolve that in the next year or two, then actually we'll miss the boat. Funds will be committed. Innovations will be being developed and upscaled in other places. And, and the, ultimately our, our, the, the footprint of our heavy industry will shift and we become importers of materials rather than producers of materials in our own right. Now, I think this is a problem. I think it's a problem for our manufacturing base. I think it's a problem for jobs. It's a problem for the economy. But increasingly, with greater global uncertainty, with material supply chains, particularly being locked up now by other nations, it's a problem of national security as well. So, so I think I'm, I'm very concerned about this. It's a big concern of mine. I think, it's, I think the key to it is a really sound, stable policy direction. What I want to see is an industrial strategy that takes us to 2030 that gives business the certainty to win
1: okay right david what needs to happen now i mean we've got aside from the industrial strategy which is clearly very important so you've got the harder task you go second
3: yeah well i think we've got i think we've got a a a major problem i won't call it policy but we've got we've recognized materials and manufacturing as one of the seven key you know great technologies essentially the uk um but we haven't got a national strategy there is no national strategy around advanced materials and innovation, for instance, around materials, and so it's absolutely crucial that we get this. you know it, it, without it, you know we need a, we need a, a clearly articulated plan for, for end-to-end materials to, to develop, if you like, a research and development ecosystem, and it's right through from that materials discovery end where, where I 've got interest, right through to that scale up um, and pilot through to scale up. Um, know it's got to be it's really I guess it's a a blueprint for the UK um, to become an international place to develop advanced materials faster than than ever because we need to do that Um, and in that there's also a big role for the region you know levelling up all these sorts of things they all play a part in this about how we want to do that so ultimately I I think it's now time for the government industry and academia to work together shape the future um, and it's about developing and growing an advanced materials industry and, and ensuring that it remains strongly rooted in the UK, just as Chris has said, and delivers long-term benefits for society as a whole. But without that strategy, it's very hard um, to come up and prioritize where we should be investing, where research technology organizations should be putting their major focus, etc. So get it right and we can ensure the profile of the subjects is attracting all, that all-important group of people in as well raising you know the importance of the discipline because ultimately you know there's a number of this is going to go on for decades and we need to pull those individuals through so I think the right strategy develops the right ecosystem develops the right investment develops the right excitement develops the next generation of people that come through and you can't you know all of those things need to be considered in that process
1: okay so that wasn't the hard exam question because you both got to give quite long answers to that which were great and, and full of insight the hard exam question for both of you just just before we finish is that when it comes to you know the question of materials for net zero or ma- materials for a more sustainable future however you uh, choose to phrase it what's the message that you would both put on a billboard if you could you know if you wanted to shout to the world this is what politicians or the public or business owners need to know what's the one like short message that you're like this is what the world needs to know you know in order for all the things you've described to be successful hard exam question who's going to go first
2: well I'll tell you what, I'll I'll go, Dave, and I'll give you a bit bit of time to think about it. Look, I think I think the key message is that the last century was the century of oil, and the coming century is absolutely the century of metals and materials. If we're gonna decarbonize, if we're going to, to, to save the planet and continue to have a good standard of living, we will only do that. By innovation in new ways of new materials and new ways of making materials, and so materials needs to rise up our agenda in a way that it never has done before.
1: Very good, quite a big billboard, but we'll let you, we'll let you have it, David.
3: I think following on from Chris, I think it's about it's about recognising that we've got a finite resource. So we've got to get make the most out of every atom.
1: Very good. That will fit on the that will fit in big letters on a, a big billboard. I like that. Brilliant. Well, thank you both very much. There is there is so much to think about in this issue. Lots to get excited about, and and this foundation of of R and D in all kinds of areas, is clearly developing. But there's a lot of work still to do, and lots to think about. So thank you very very much to Chris and David for your insight and commentary on this topic. I'm Helen Chersky, and you've been listening to the Materials Change podcast from IOM3. So until next time. time... goodbye
0: thanks once again to the sponsors of this episode srk consulting and the university of bath you can read watch and learn more about their work and about the full material change resourcing net zero digital series by going to materialchange.iom3.org and don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on social to check out more of our podcast collaborations